All right, so we are continuing on in the book of Acts. Uh, by the way, my name is Alan. If I haven't met you yet, I am the uh, pastor of Stepping Stone, which is our college ministry at Johns Hopkins University. Um, and today we're going through the book of Acts. Um, we're continuing on our series. Um, we're halfway there, so we've still got a bit ways to go. But um, So we're going to be in Acts 16 to 17 today. We're going to be covering, jumping around, covering a bunch of different passages. And, um, you know, it's going to feel like a little bit of hodgepodge at first. But, um, but, you know, kind of what I want to sort of unify this overall kind of theme or this message is that like wherever Paul, so the Paul missionary, um, wherever he goes, there seems to be this very mixed bag of responses. Um, so he goes to one city and he preaches the gospel and he goes to another city and preaches the gospel and he, and he does all that. Um, but in every place you go, you seem to see these two consistent things happen, right? You seem to see some people, they respond and they believe and um, the Luke, the author of Acts, sometimes he writes down like, yeah, this person and that person and they believe and all that. And in pretty much almost every place as well, you also see, like, people who are trying to kill them. Um, literally trying to kill them, right? Um, so it's crazy. You know, you, you have this, like, very polarizing response to the gospel, to Paul, to these uh, people who are going out to preach the message of Christ. And as I was kind of looking at all these various responses to the gospel of these people, you know, one of the questions that came to mind for me was, you know, what makes some of these people respond to the moving of the Holy Spirit? And what makes others, like, not respond? Not even not respond, but, like, want to kill them, you know? Um, and it was the same with Jesus, too, right? Like, why is it, you know, that some people, what, what are the qualities, perhaps, of some of these people um, that responded to the Lord? And what are the qualities of the, some of these people who didn't? And, and maybe that, that could be instructive for us today, um, not only in just terms of how we share the gospel, but in terms of even for ourselves. How do we respond to the Holy Spirit? Um, how do we, you know, what are the qualities perhaps that help us to be people who have open hearts to God, right? Um, and so I'm hoping that as we go through some of these categories, you know, some of these people and look at some real-life examples, right, that we can kind of even be able to reflect for ourselves, like, oh, this is kind of where I am. This is what perhaps I would struggle with. Um, so that's what we're doing for today. We're going to be looking at these three groups of people, the Philippians first, not as much because Larry already covered them um, two weeks ago. Uh, the Thessalonians and the Bereans. So first, in Acts 16, this is kind of the beginning of Paul's missionary journey. So he's just set foot. He's crossed this kind of like narrow channel from Turkey to Greece, and he's in Europe now, right? And so previously, a lot of these things are happening were in Asia, um, but now he's like in Europe. Um, he's in unfamiliar territory, and he's going from city to city, and one of the first places he goes to to preach the gospel is this place called Philippi. Um, and specifically, Paul had this vision to do this, and Larry, I think Larry covered this two weeks ago. Um, but, you know, there was this vision that was given to Paul, uh, this man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Um, so this vision where, you know, Paul's very much led by his spirit to go there and to preach the gospel. And so he went, so he's there, he's at the Philippi, um, and, and so here we are um, in, where is my, where's my clicker? Oh, gosh. Oh boy. Okay. We're just going to do that. Thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, next, next slide. Um, Acts 16, verse 13 to 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside. So this is Paul speaking, and well, actually Luke speaking um, about him in, in this group, which includes Paul. We went outside to the gate, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was the woman named Lydia. In the city of Theatira, 
a seller of purple goods who is a worshiper of God. And so Paul is, you know, he's a new person in the city, and, you know, it's, it's very interesting kind of how, you know, what his strategy is. Like, how am I going to go about do this? So it sounds like he probably, you know, usually goes to the city and asks around, like, okay, you know, um, you know, where are the Jewish people at? Like, where are the synagogues at, you know? And, like, you know, uh, you know where are there people that in some ways have some kind of connection to God? And I'm going to start speaking to them about the gospel. And in this particular place, it's interesting because most times he just goes to the synagogue, wherever the synagogue is. Um, but this particular place, he just goes to a unnamed place of prayer by the riverside. We don't know what that means. It's, it seems like some kind of open sort of intercessory meeting. I don't know. Um, and it's interesting because the predominant people there are women, right? He, he says, we sat down and we spoke to women who had come together. Let's go on to the next slide. It says, the Lord opened her heart, it's talking about Lydia, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And that's the first kind of passage we're going to look at. And so it's very interesting to me, you know, with this, this picture of Philippi, um, that the first convert in Europe, right, is this wholly unexpected person, perhaps. Uh, I don't think it's the person that Paul had in mind when he thought about, like, this is the person that's going to come to Christ first, you know, in Europe. Um, it was Lydia. And we look at a little bit of who she is, Lydia of Theatira. Um, she's considered a saint in some branches of Christianity. Um, I want to just take a look at some really interesting things about her because I think this is going to be instructive for us. Um, what's unusual about Lydia? Well, first, she is described as a worshiper of God, right? Um, and this phrase is usually meant to describe someone who actually isn't usually Jewish because if they're Jewish, you don't, you, just, you don't say that they're a worshiper of God. They just, you know, they're Jewish. Of course they were a worship of God, you know. So the fact that she's mentioned about this person, like the worshiper of God, kind of like Cornelius from earlier sermons, suggests possibly that she is this Gentile person, this person that's not Jewish, but who has kind of come to want, want to seek and want to know the Jewish God. And so she's, you know, at this Jewish place of prayer, and she's like, yeah, I want to know who God is. I'm open. I'm trying to learn, you know, what it is. I'm worshiping God already. She already has some faith in God, right? So this is this person. So she's already in some ways kind of an outsider, perhaps, to the faith, you know. Second, and this is an obvious thing that Lydia is a woman, right? Um, and again, this is perhaps surprising, um, because this is perhaps not usually what Paul would have expected, the people Paul would have expected to reach. Um, usually when you look at the other places, Paul goes to synagogues, you know, in, in a society that was very male-dominated, right? You know, and the, the culture was very much the men are the leaders, of, you know, and they're, they're the ones you speak to, and the, you know, and the women get the information from the men later. That's kind of the, the sort of the, 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 that's the way that society worked at that time. You know, it's, it's really interesting here that the predominant people that Paul is preaching to at this place of prayer are women, right? And, of course, like, the person that responds here is a woman. Um, there's, there's something interesting about that kind of idea here. Not that Paul is thinking anything theologically here. You know, we're not trying to imbue any theological importance in this. But just the fact that there is, like, a necessity of just, you know, who are the leaders going to be in the, in the church? Well, who are the people who are coming to Christ? Well, some of the earliest people, right, on a lot of these places were women. Um, and they, in some ways, became de facto leaders in the church, not because of any theolo theological reason or whatever, but simply because they were the ones responding to the message. They were just the ones who were open to the gospel. And so here we see Lydia being the first person responding to the gospel, and she promptly responds in faith, 
And she, she's like, baptize me and let's meet at my house. <laughs> you know, and she prevails upon us. You know, there's a sense that maybe that, you know, Paul was perhaps like a little like hesitant. You know, he's like, ah, I don't know. This, you know, this, this breaks some boundaries. I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this idea. And Lydia's like, come on. Like, am I not a Christian or not? Like, come over and let me kind of give what I can to this cause, right? And then third, I think there was an interesting aspect about Lydia, um, is that Lydia was likely, and we're reading into the text here, likely a single woman or a widow. Um, and, and the reason why is because the way in which Lydia operates in this passage is very much on her own authority. Um, and again, in a male-dominant society, like, there isn't, you know, there wouldn't be that kind of common sort of thing if she had a husband, if that were the case. So she was someone who was under her own authority. Um, and she's described in some ways as this, like, self-made woman in some ways because, you know, she's described as the seller of purple goods, that she provides her income for herself, um, that she's in some ways kind of like a, um, I don't know, it's like a culture breaker <laughs> in some ways, right? Um, a seller of purple goods, purple is like this royal and rare color, so it's this idea that, you know, she's made this business, she's found this niche you know, where she sells these like high-end luxury goods, right? Um, these purple goods in some ways. So she, you could see her as like a, maybe like a Gucci bag seller or something like that right? in our modern day. So again, things that you might not expect from the first person to convert to Christianity, right? Certainly probably not what, you know, what Paul was perhaps thinking, but yet here is this person who is unexpectedly very open to the gospel. And here we see in this line, right, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Out of all these women here, like, you know, Luke singles out this one woman as this, this, this woman who's, you know, really listening attentively, you know, really devoted, really captured in her attention um, because she could perceive perhaps something different, something of life in what Paul was speaking about. Um, so I think that's very interesting for us to think about. Not only just that Lydia was an unexpected person, um, but the openness that Lydia had to even, you know, this, this weird situation to listen to Paul. I don't know if, you know, if you put in yourself in her shoes how bizarre that situation may be that you're, you know, you're going to a place of prayer and all of a sudden this group of strange foreign men are coming and, you know, and turning your world upside down literally, right? And telling you about the Messiahs here is like, wait, we never, no one's ever told me that. You know, I've been to Jewish one-on-one -on -one class and no one said that, right? Um, so it's pretty crazy, you know, how, you know, I would say it was necessary that God had to supernaturally move to bring about this openness to her. But I think there's something that's a challenge for us in Lydia's example. I think there's something about, perhaps for us, that we need to be thinking about, that what is perhaps necessary to experience the Holy Spirit's moving in our lives is that we have to also be open to him and to be open to the ways in which he's moving, even if it's in ways and it's in people and it's in circumstances that we don't expect perhaps in ways that perhaps are even uncomfortable for us. I, th I see in Lydia a hint of someone who is willing to go beyond what is conventional and normative, right, in everything about her life, in her lifestyle, in her self-made business, in, in the way she even invites Paul over, you know, in her adopting of a foreign religion. It seems like Lydia is not someone who's afraid of change, and she's not, she's not afraid of falling out of line with whatever everyone else is doing if she feels like this is the right thing to do, this is, this is something... Um, that's necessary. And, and I think that makes her open to being this first adopter of this strange new message, right, the gospel at the time. 
her heart seems to be in the right place. And that's what I admire about Lydia. And I think that's something that we perhaps can be encouraged by and challenged by, is how we, we can be people like Lydia too, right? That even in the church, you know, we can be people who are so, I guess, fixated on, you know, this is how I've always known Christianity to be and how churches run and how things are happening, that in some ways that we can also miss out on what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives in the people around us. Um, I think a lot of times I hear from people that, oh, I don't feel like God is moving, right? And what I see in Scripture is that God seems to be moving all the time, right? That he always seems to be working in people. And it's just a matter of whether we are aware, you know, whether we're on the same page with God, so to speak. You know, so many times we ask if God is on the same page with us. But, you know, the question maybe we should be asking is, you know, are we open to what God is doing around us? Are we looking like Lydia was looking? This week, I was randomly on campus. I was visiting Richard, and I was just doing some work. And, um, you know, and what I love about campus is that campus is, you know, Hopkins campus, it's just, it's a very open place. It's a, in some ways, like a hub for sharing of ideas, of thoughts. Or people are very, you know, you know, 20-some-year-olds, right? You're learning things. <laughs> you don't know things. You're changing your worldview, you know, like for many of us. Like, I changed my worldview in college. I became a Christian. You know, and so I love that, you know, that it's a place that in very much practices a sense of openness. And I, I love, I want to take advantage of that, right? Um, that that is a place where people aren't closed off. And randomly, I was walking around. It was like freezing that day. <laughs> and there's this person who was like handing out flyers or something, you know. And in my, my mind, I'm like, if anyone's down to stand in the cold and hand out flyers for anything, like, you know, I'm down to take a flyer. But I have no idea whether I'm interested or not. I'm down to talk to that person because they clearly care enough about whatever they're doing that, they're willing to do that, so let's talk, you know. Um, and I, you know, I haven't been on the other side for Christianity, right? I'm like, it doesn't feel good to be ignored by people. So, you know, so I was like talking to this person, and it turns out this person was um, advocating for like a socialist group on campus, okay? Um, you know, and so, you know, I'm just, we're just talking, and the first question she asked me is like, what do you think is wrong with the world? And what do you think can be changed? And I'm like, that's a fantastic question. Like, I love that question. Like, that's the question I actually ask people when I go talk to random people. Like, this is great, you know. Um, so I was like super excited. So we were just talking and we were just sharing ideas, you know. And it was, I don't know, it was just, uh, it was a short conversation, but, you know, because I was very cold. And I, had to, and I was not wearing enough clothing, but it was fun, you know. And I was just like, you know, I don't, it's nice just to be able to talk to somebody and not feel this pressure that, you know, I have to sort of like arm wrestle her into somewhere or she has to arm wrestle me to somewhere. And just to see where the conversation goes, you know, just to see what God is doing. Um, and we had, I thought we had a great conversation because at least in my mind, I don't know, maybe she didn't perceive it that way. You know, she's just like, yeah, like, you know, we were talking about kind of what those issues were. And I, I got to, you know, affirm that, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm coming from a Christian worldview. But I got to affirm for her that like, yeah, I think there are systemic reasons why the world is messed up. Like, I agree with that, you know, I, I I think there are problems, you know, that need to be fixed. But I also think that there are individual responsibility for sin too, you know, and I, I, I just see that there's both, right? And I don't think that just fixing systems alone will correct people's greed or their sin. And, and there's both, right? Like, but I think that the fact that you really care about people who are poor and oppressed is an amazing thing. And I think that's something that Christians, like, you know, strive to do. And okay, I didn't say those exact words, but something along those lines. And you know, it just got me thinking so much, like, like I, socialism, you know, historically has, has been a major enemy of the Christianity, right? For whatever reason, like, when you think about, like, the, one of the main persecutors of Christianity in the 20th century in China and Russia and these places. 
But, you know, and so there's, there's a lot of this, like, you know, in some ways, um, animosity, right? But does there need to be? <laughs> you know, and, you know, when I, when I talked to her and I was just like, why, if your heart, the reason why you're driven to this is because you want to see the world renewed and changed and you have a heart to see people who are suffering not suffer anymore, man, that's a beautiful thing, right? And I would love to, I didn't get the chance to, right? I would love to talk to you about how I see the gospel is a beautiful thing that undergirds, I think, the same values and the same desire, you know, to see, you know, to see, I don't know, to see people not suffer, to see, you know, people not taken advantage of, you know, isn't that a great thing? Isn't that something we should agree on? Um, yeah, the conversation didn't end up with, you know, me sharing the gospel or like baptizing somebody or anything, but, you know, it was just an opportunity that I was challenged by, Lord, to just be like, how can I just be open to talking to whoever and whomever, you know, whatever, social person, maybe next person, I don't know, like something, something completely different, you know. And I want to challenge you guys to think about that as well. You know, maybe it's the person that you're driving by and, you know, who's asking for a spare change, or maybe it's your coworker, or maybe it's your friend that, you know, you, you already know that you do not align with them on a lot of topics, you know. Um, how can we be open to perhaps God is moving you know, how can we ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, you know, take me into those uncomfortable places um, because I want to be used by you. If we go on to the next slide. Next, we're going to look, we're jumping around. We're skipping over a certain group and we'll get back to them, the Thessalonians. But here in Acts 17, we, we, we go to the, the, this group of people called the Bereans. Um, so here we say, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and we're going to get to them in a bit. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Again, a few Greek women, again, mentioned here specifically, right? And I find this, you know, very interesting as well, that perhaps a second attribute besides openness is a willingness to investigate. I don't know if you and I would necessarily think that, like these are people that, you know, who are the people we're looking for that can come to Christ? Or, you know, what is, what is, you know, being open to the Holy Spirit look like? Well, maybe it's actually skepticism in a healthy way. Maybe it's actually a willingness to investigate and to see for yourself that that isn't opposed to faith, but that is actually, you know, something that comes from faith. We see here that they receive the word with all eagerness, but they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And I think that's a really important point because I think there's a big misconception in Christianity and, and in the world, right? That Christianity is about blind faith, right? That Christianity is about just believing whoever said whatever to you and just following along without questioning, without thinking. And I, I would just say like scripturally, like I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't think it's like you have to answer if someone asks you, why do you believe? Well. I kind of have to believe because, you know, I was told so and I don't want to disobey authority of, you know, no, no, it's a good thing to be able to think for yourself if it's done in humility, right, and with this openness. Um, and I think that's something that we can challenge ourselves in that kind of way. When I was kind of going through like some struggles with my faith earlier a few years ago when I was kind of taking apart some things and, and really thinking about like why do I believe the things I do, um, you know, one of the questions I had was, what distinguishes Christianity from just any crazy conspiracy theory out there, right? That if you and I just think, okay, you just have to, you know, unquestionably submit to some kind of authority out there without ever thinking about it, 
then that leaves us in danger of all kinds of cults, right? All kinds of conspiracy theories. I mean, that's the whole idea there, right? Is that people don't listen to opposing evidence, but they just hear what they want to hear, and sometimes you even make up your own facts, right? And that's, that's problematic, right? So what distinguishes Christianity? If your reason for being a Christian is that I grew up Christian and my family is Christian, my mom said I should be Christian, and you know, I just listened to whatever the dude up front says, what distinguishes you from, I don't know, like any other conspiracy theory out there, right? And, and what, I don't know, and I think your ability to then be able to like be open and to share with people who are vastly different from you is gonna be very weak, right? Because you're gonna not have anything to say, not have anything to contribute to that kind of conversation. So I don't think at all that faith, you know, when we talk about faith, because there is a place for faith in Christianity, that faith is about blind belief in some authority without questioning. I don't think that's at all. I think there is a place for evidence. There's a place for questioning, for thinking, for studying things like apologetics, um, for reasoning, right? It's not you to turn off your brain when you become a Christian. But I do think that, you know, oh, I do think that one thing I do, I do want to say, though, um, is that what is faith then, right? If it's not this kind of blind questioning of belief, it's not just this adopting of something randomly. Well, I think that faith, the more and more I look in the Bible, I think that faith is not so much about the process about how you come to accept God and his word as authority, which can be this reason-driven thing, but it's more about once you have accepted Christ and God as your authority, do you actually trust him and do you actually obey him? Do you actually live out what he says? Because it's still hard. Like, I can be intellectually convinced that God is real, but to live for an invisible reality that I don't get to see always every day requires a lot of trust, requires a lot of faith. And that's what I think biblically, when you look at all these people, what faith is. If you go on to the next slide, let's think of an analogy of this. I don't know if any of you guys did this when you were, you know, in like grade school or whatever. Like, I feel like they love to do this, right? It's like bonding time, you know? Um, so it's called a trust fall. If you didn't know what it is, so you stand on a platform somewhere and you just fall backwards and you trust that you're you know, fellow classmates or whoever your group is, is gonna, they're gonna catch you, right? And I always found this interesting because, you know, like if you're standing up there, right, and, you know, hopefully if you've done your research, right, this is not a random group of people, this is not a group of psychopaths, right? Like, you know, you know that they are trustworthy. In your mind, if, if someone to ask you, like, what confidence do you have that when you fall, you're not gonna be hurt? You'd be like, oh yeah, you know, 100%, right? And that's, that's what we mean by like, you know, not trusting blind authority. You've done your research and you've done that. But you still gotta take the fall, right? You still gotta take the fall. In that moment, you see the psychological like dissonance where it's like, okay, like I know I will fall. I know it will be okay. But I, I still don't wanna do it, you know? I still like, ooh, it's really, 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 really hard. I think that's what Christian life is sometimes, right? We're not asking, you know, it's faith, you know, to trust that these people, you know, you should do your research and see if they're trustworthy. But it's faith to actually go and put into words what you have intellectually already believed and reasoned. And that's, that's a challenge, right? And I think that's where a lot of Christians stop short, is that we're, we're good with just being on the platform and just being like, yep, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in all these things. But we're afraid. We're afraid to actually live out and to actually put into that action what we have intellectually come to believe. Well, I think that's what the Bereans were doing, I think, when they were investigating, when they were thinking, and, and, and we see in the response of all these Christians, 
that there was an immediate response of faith, that there was a baptism, there was an identification with this new group that oftentimes brought persecution. There is this no gray area where the Bereans were like, they investigated, they're like, checks out, but I'm gonna remain in the synagogue though, still. <laughs> you know. No, they went and they believed. Finally, I think a third quality that we see um, in these people was, um, in these people that responded, it was a willingness to respond, a willingness to live out and to submit and to even let go of things um, that were a part of their past. And we're gonna actually see this with a negative example. Okay, so we have a negative example to show in some ways what not to do. And this is, this is uh, people at Thessalonica. So if we look at, here we go. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days, Sabbath days, again, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paulus and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Again, you see this pattern again. He always mentions the Greeks and the women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason, some of the brothers, before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason had received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So here we have a picture of what not to do. And this is not everyone in Thessalonica, but a certain group of people. And here we have an interesting, you know, if we go back to that, I'll actually forward one slide. Here, here we have an interesting insight, just, just one word phrase that kind of gives us an insight to perhaps why these people acted the way that they did. And it says that Jews were jealous. That their, 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 their reasoning wasn't, you know, we checked the scriptures and it didn't check out. You know, like we reasoned through it and we're like, no, this is definitely a false teaching. This definitely, mm -mm, this is not right. You know, and, and in some ways, like the way they would have acted, I think would have been probably different if that were the case. But here it describes an emotion as the primary reason for why they acted the way they did. They were jealous. And I think it's easy to look at them and be like, condemn them and be like, oh, these horrible people, you know, and be confused by why they were so extreme in their response. But I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a second, because I actually think that there's something really instructive that we could see about ourselves here. Imagine if you are, right, a leader of a synagogue somewhere. Imagine if you're a church, a synagogue leader, right, and you're happy with the, the way things are, right? You're a respected person, you know, you've, you've taught for years and years these things, you know, people look up to you, you've got a good thing going, you've got a nice, tight community, you know, things are nice, right? You're perhaps, you know, the, the inflow of money, you know, is, is good, you know, and, you're, and, you know, everything's in order, you know, and, and, you're, and you're happy about how things are. And suddenly out of the blue on one day, perhaps at your weekly service time, right, a group of people come in and they're, and they're very different, right? And suddenly they're proclaiming a message which is alarming, right? It, it, it's just absolutely alarming. The Messiah is here. What? Really? You know? And Jesus, and he's the one who, who they, they crucified, he's the one who is. And let me show you from scripture. Let me prove it to you, right? You know, you can see how you would feel threatened, right? You would see how perhaps you would feel defensive. And if you weren't careful, I mean, those are normal experiences, those are normal responses, not necessarily sinful. You could see how if you were careful, if you weren't careful, you could let those things drive you, right? And you could start to become jealous, 
And you can start to see as you see more and more people go, you know what, these guys are right. Well, let's go follow them. Let's, you know, let's, let's go do this thing. You can start to be like, hmm, my own power and authority is shrinking, right? And this, this don't feel good. You could see perhaps how you could be jealous and how you could be motivated to persecute something. Not because you actually have thought through it and you're convinced that it's right or wrong, but because you just, it, it, it totally threatens your world and it threatens your world upside down. That is the motivation and that blocked their hearts in some ways to the Holy Spirit working. I think there's something about us, you know, something that we have to think about for us because there's a danger, a real danger of why we often don't listen to the Holy Spirit is that we don't actually search through and investigate and we're not open to things. We judge based off of appearances and when it's not comfortable for us, we're like, nah, nah, that, that's not it. That's not it for me. And I think we're in a danger of a huge trap here because I think when you consistently read and Acts in the gospel, you see that consistently the groups of people who did not respond to the gospel, they didn't, you know, they didn't, you know, hear them out, were consistently the people who were comfortable, who were happy with the status quo, with things as they were. And they were in positions of power already. They were in positions of respect. Oftentimes they were rich people. And it's, and it's this group of people that struggle the most consistently to respond to the gospel. Why? Because it's like what he said here. These men have turned the world upside down. And now we're at the bottom, and we don't like that, right? You know, so I think there's something really challenging. If you look at, you know, Jesus' persistent battles with the Pharisees again and again and again, right? He reasons with them. He shows them evidence. But at some point, it's clear. It's not because of intellect, because the lack of evidence that these guys are not turning to Christ, right? It's because they hate him, because what he represents topples their whole world. Yet consistently, on the other hand, you see that those responded to the Spirit for whatever reason— you know, who are open and willing to change, you know, they in some sense were those who were desperate, perhaps because they had no other choice. They were sick, they were poor, perhaps over their sense of their own sin and guilt, you know, that they were respected, receptive. they were open to the Spirit. They, they could say to God, do whatever you want with my life, because my life is already a mess, so <laughs> it's only going to be an improvement from here. I think when you consistently look at the gospel, the message of Christ, right, that it's repent for the kingdom of God is coming and be forgiven of your sins, it's an uncomfortable message no matter how you swing it, for Christians and not Christians alike. It threatens your own kingdom, if you have one. It threatens your pride. It tells you to lay down yourself in ways that you, you don't want to. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't stop being uncomfortable just because you're a Christian. In my own recent QTs in Luke 14, Jesus says some of my least favorite words of all time, right? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Every time I read those words, I'm always like, oh, dang, <laughs> It's uncomfortable. I don't, you, I'm, I'm sure you guys feel uncomfortable, and I think Jesus meant it to be uncomfortable because he wanted it to be so clear, like just black and white clear for you guys. You can't have both. You can't have your kingdom and my kingdom too. You can't have your cake and eat it too in some ways, right? You want to experience what I have. You want to come follow me. You have to be prepared that you're going to have to lose some things perhaps that are dear to you right? You can't have your kingdom and my kingdom. There can't be two kings on the throne, right? Don't work that way. 
You know, if you want him to be your king, he's gonna, he's, you have to have him be your king. And I want to remind you, encourage you, right, that Jesus isn't telling this stuff to us because he hates us, he's made, trying to make our life hard, but because he loves us, right? Because he knows what is better, that when he is king, it's better, that his kingdom is so much better than whatever, whatever crap in some ways that we can, that we can conjure ourselves. He says he wants to give to us the kingdom of God, of all things. He wants to bring change in our lives, change that often is uncomfortable, yes, because he knows what is truly good. And so he's asking us to turn over perhaps what is in our hands in the moment. I think about sometimes, I haven't gone to this point in parenting, but I, you know, I watch parents like Larry and VK or you know, Phil and, and Jenny and, and others, and, 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 I'm, um, and I'm always just like, man, like, kids are rough, right? kids are difficult. But there's always a sense that, like, you know, I just have this image, I don't know if this actually happens or not, that, you know, this kid is just holding something that, you know, and, and you're like, you want to give them something else to hold that perhaps is what they need to be holding, like their food or whatever, right? And they're holding some toy or whatever. And you're like, buddy, like, <laughs> you need to let go of what you're currently holding in order to hold this new thing so that you can actually eat from it and enjoy whatever good thing that I'm trying to do for you right now, right? I imagine that's how parenting is. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but, you know, I just think about that. I just think so many times for us with God, you know, how often are we not willing to hear these hard words? Hey, give it up, buddy. You know, give it up, buddy. Not, you know, because we, not because Jesus doesn't love us, but because he loves us. He's like, I have so much better for you. Be my disciple is so great, and I want to show you these things. But you don't have room in your life. You can't until you give up the things that you need to give up. So I want to challenge you with that idea, because I was, I think, what drew, what caused these Jews in Thessalonica to respond in such a negative way to the gospel, and caused them in some ways to miss out on the Holy Spirit and on something greater that they could have been a part of. So here are my two challenges for you today, right? How can we be open to the Spirit's working in my life? Okay, the first question for us to think about today, have I made time in my life to be open to God, to listen to what he has to say, whatever it is? right? Have I, you know, some of us, like, we, we can't even be open to God because we're just going five million miles an hour, you know, and it's like, okay, well, just, you know, unless, I don't know, unless God literally does something crazy, you're just not going to listen, right? You need to make time to be open to God, and that means reading the Word, right? Like, how else are you going to hear from God? You know, it means reading the Word. Um, it means, you know, taking time to just sit and reflect, and, and not just to be like, oh, have I crossed off all the Christian rules? I'm good with you, God. To really say to God, God, if you want to change something about my life, about me today, what would you change? And let's try to do this. <laughs> with your help and with your power, obviously, right? Depending on you. Let's go about doing this. Secondly, what are your barriers? What are the things that make you want to reject God's working in your life? What are the things that whenever God, you know, the Holy Spirit tries to touch that thing, you're just like, mm, no, that's off limits, sorry. That's, that's like my personal bin. What are those things that are preventing you, and in some ways are this, and you know in your heart, right? These are things that like, cause me to reject God and say no to him. And perhaps we need to, you know, at some point today, maybe today, you know, maybe some with somebody else at some other time, we need to actually kind of repent of those things. We need to surrender those things, and we need to say to God, okay, Lord, it's yours. I'm trying my best here, but it's yours, you know. 
So those are two things I want us to, you know, even think about as we um, do worship and as we um, close with worship and as we, um, yeah, just do communion for today. Let me pray for us. Father, would you, God, we, we need your voice, Lord, so much. We need you, Lord. God, and all we can offer sometimes is just a sincere heart that says, Lord, here I am with all my struggles, all my fears, all my sins. I am a broken person, Lord. And if it were up to myself to change me, I know that's not going to happen alone. But God, you love to rescue sinners. You love to rescue people who can't help themselves. And you love to pour out your grace. And I believe in Scripture that, yeah, that you want to do that in us, God. And in some ways, the only condition is how, how open we are willing to be with you, Lord. So God, I, I know we all have our, our kingdoms. I know we have, all have our idols. We all have the things that we love. But God, would you help us as a church to walk in openness with your spirit? To live in ways that truly are, are submitted to your lordship and yours alone, Lord. And for those of us, Lord, who do not know you, Lord, or who are visiting, God, I pray that they would know you, Lord. I pray that they would perhaps be like the Bereans and investigate for themselves, that they would look into things, that they would not feel pressured in any way, but that, God, that they would feel the freedom to be able to encounter and to learn and to grow about the God of this universe. We pray that they would know your son, Jesus, and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So Lord, I thank you, God, for your words that you speak and that you will speak and you'll continue to speak in our lives if we are open to it. In Jesus' name, amen.